0: everyone, and welcome to DevOps Decrypted. This is episode four, A New Hope. I'm your host, Romy Greenfield, um, and joining me today are Jobin Caravilla. say hello. Hello, hello. And we've also got Matt Saunders, say hello.
1: Hello, hello, hello.
0: Cool. Um, so today, wanted to start, start off talking about something that I found very amusing that happened a little while ago, which was the Facebook outage. So WhatsApp, Instagram, and Facebook all down for over six hours. It, it was, was a biggie.
2: Yeah, it was a biggie. Yeah. It was only six hours. I mean, it felt like a lifetime.
0: <laughs> it did. It did because we all had to go back to using text and actually know, ringing right? people. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. and uh, like all that time we got back through, not like constantly uh, checking our feeds, um, <laughs> you know, in yeah, Facebook and Instagram. Be-
2: yeah. people were are suddenly active in Slack. I don't know why.
0: <laughs> i was actually very upset because i was expecting a reply to one of my texts and didn't realize that it had gone down and it'd been an hour i thought hey this is getting rude
1: <laughs> yeah that person just didn't like you remy that's what it was <laughs> no in seriousness yeah um massive and it's a sign of like how massively dependent the entire world is on these platforms now um yeah. that it caused I- so much news um so much inconvenience um Everybody's like, yeah, yeah, but it just means that people can't chat to each other. Um, but yeah, it's it's not just a, a, a toy. Um, people are running businesses on these things, mm-hmm. um, and um, and and you know, you just can't really survive their everyday lives without these tools. It's a bit of a scary thing, um, I think. Yeah,
0: definitely. But let's I talk think... about
1: DevOps angle of it, right?
0: Yeah, I think the thing that scared me the most about it was the fact that um, the reason that they. Well, from what I've read anyway, the reason that they couldn't get it back online was the fact that it was so secure that even the developers that could kind of help couldn't access it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think the best thing I read about that is, I think somebody tweeted about it, they said, oh, Facebook actually left their keys inside the car and locked themselves out of it. (laughs) So they just couldn't get back inside. Um, I wonder if it is because they were not having a newer model of the car, which would have prevented them from doing it, or is it because, you know, uh, they were so secure, as Romy, you just mentioned.
0: Yeah. I mean, I've locked myself out of the car before, and that was really embarrassing, and I had to get my dad to come and bring a spare key. So (laughs) Facebook's dad (laughs) had to come down.
2: Which is kind of what they did. They had to actually manually go to the data center and do a hard reset because they just couldn't do a software using software,
1: right? Yeah. Yeah, they should have used Mark Zuckerberg's dad, who I believe is actually a dentist. I should sure be the drills and equipment to, to get him in. Um, I mean,
0: it, it was as painful as pulling
1: teeth, so oh, very good, Romy. Very good. <laughs> 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 so yeah, so I, I'm not like looking at this with a whole load of Schadenfreude. Um, um because yeah, I mean Facebook are up there as, as a pinnacle of technical excellence. Um mm-hmm. and um and, and you're like, oh, you're supposed to be brilliant, and yet, you, you know you're down for six hours. Um, could it have been prevented with better DevOps? Um, that's an interesting one to unpick. Um, mm-hmm. I'll give it a stab for a couple of minutes if we're all right, and, uh, yeah, go and for you it. guys can weigh in on it. Yep. Um, so it seems like the root of what caused this to happen was um, around um, BGP announcements. Um, of the, the the routing um for Facebook's um IP addresses. So the, the IP addresses that run things like their name servers um uh just disappear from the internet and they lock themselves out from that. Um and I'm starting to think of some DevOpsy type things that I'm sure they were doing, and it's easy for us to like look on from the outside and, mm-hmm. and say, oh, why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? Um mm. but I'm trying to approach it from a learning perspective of things like um circuit breakers, um uh peer review, that sort of thing. Um the thing about them locking themselves out of their their own data centers um and not being able to get in with assist um with, with their key cards, uh yeah good design suggests that uh you use some sort of circuit breaker. Um and similarly in deploying any sort of software if you've got a process and it's all automated, which is what we should be doing. You know, banging that DevOps drum, automate all the things, um, centralise all the things, um, but still have a way of like manually going over there and like flipping the button. It's like finally the key to your car under um, under a paving slab um, around the back of the house, right, Romy? Um, that sort of thing. I think it's is a good pattern that you know we can use and, and we can highlight the usage of. Um, similarly, um, the peer review. Apparently, it was uh, an automated check of some sort. Um that was supposed to run and not actually change anything but actually change some things um, by mistake. And, and yeah, I'm sure they've got all the right processes around here around this. Um, and it was some very weird thing that they hadn't really considered could have been a problem um, that caused uh, this automated process to go off and, and basically lock everybody out. Um, it's um it's again another another sign of of how good testing. Um, anticipating what might go wrong, expecting things to go wrong, uh, because they sure will, uh, making sure you've got a good way out of it if they do. Um, And, um, you know, all those sort of DevOps principles kind of come to mind. Um, And, yes, I'll say it one more time. Um, I'm sure that everything that they do to prevent problems like that is way ahead of anything that we've done um, in our much, much smaller worlds. Um, But, yeah, those are the things I start to think about.
2: Yeah, yeah, I would completely agree. And it's interesting that you talked about the automated testing, right? So they had a script which will go and check these kind of scenarios. But unfortunately, they had a bug in that script. So basically, they never figured out, I mean, this scenario never occurred before. So nobody could actually foresee this. But that's where I wonder if chaos engineering would have done something different. I mean, Mm. if there are ways we could reproduce something like this, right? Obviously, you cannot exactly predict this one particular problem, but maybe think about all the scenarios that can happen and, you know, introduce some kind of chaos in the production environment. And then you see whether your automated script would have picked it up or not, right? Yeah. Well, hindsight is a good thing. I mean, you can obviously talk about it now that that it has happened, Uh, but that's an interesting thought.
0: Yeah, I think it's a good idea to think, what is the worst thing I could do to my system, to my infrastructure? What's the worst command that I could write? And test those in a not production environment like that. That's probably what Facebook has now started thinking. Okay, this is the worst thing that we could possibly have done at that time. Now we've accidentally tested it in production. Let's actually do some non-production testing to see what we can do to stop ourselves getting locked out next time.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, obviously the peer review is something that you brought up. Um It's great. I mean, I'm pretty sure Facebook asked that too. Um, so mm. I think we talked about it uh, probably in one of our earlier episodes. You can't actually put the blame on an individual for this one. Obviously, somebody made the change, but the system should have prevented it from, you know, going into production and bringing everything down, right? Um, So you have to say we have to improve the process here. So there should be other ways to catch this before it gets into production and bring everything down.
0: Yeah. I think it's a team effort, isn't it? When, you know, you've got something that complicated you could say that there's multiple people to blame because they made the, the security too tight, almost. But it's not any one person's fault. Yeah, one,
2: one thing I thought that was interesting, interesting was all the three products, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, they all were relying on the same infrastructure. That was what really stood out for me, right? Mm. I mean, could they have done things differently? I mean, could they have decided differently that you know, uh, not all of them would have gone down or maybe only part of them would have gone down uh, is it like disaster recovery? I mean, what else? What else they could have done differently? Obviously, without knowing the exact design of design of how they have done things, it's very difficult for us to comment. Yeah. But probably it's because of the BTP that has gone down; it made things even more difficult. But I'm curious what happened there. I mean, yeah.
0: You'd also think that maybe it would be better to have um, a degree of separation between the products, because if there was something that Majorly affected it again, you wouldn't want all three to go down at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, although it's beneficial to have the sharing of infrastructure, I think from an outage perspective, it'd be better to have that separation.
1: It's a classic trade off. It's like the all Mm -hmm. eggs in one basket thing versus the yeah you know, like you say the economies of scale that you get through um through centralizing things um and you, and you, and we have to see it through the lens of hindsight as jobin says um, yeah. i'm sure that like probably 5 minutes after everything was back those those folks at facebook were writing tests that stopped that one ever happening again yeah. Um, yeah, you can you can do you can do such great things with um, <clears throat> with chaos engineering tools like Chaos Monkey, famously invented by Netflix more than a decade ago now, um, which would um, um, not only kill off random things, um, but do them in production as well. Um, and, and and yeah, uh, sufficiently advanced organizations would be doing a load of stuff like that. Um, But there's always just that one thing just out of reach that you can't quite predict um, that that will take you down. But I think the thing to take away is that um, uh, how many outages have been prevented and... um, or outages that happen that nobody actually notices because of all these good things happening within Mm. Facebook Um, and within our own organizations. Um, We go and shine a lens on these things when they happen um, because they're they're unusual and they're extraordinary. Um, And we don't really see um, the benefits of things that we've talked about in the last few minutes. Things like um, Facebook engineers, I think, are encouraged to get something out and deployed on either their first day or their first week. And when they start, um, and they have many, many systems that protect um, the infrastructure from people making mistakes. It's all the good stuff that we talk about around CI and CD. Um, mm. And those things are helping people to um, move fast, uh, get things out, get things um, delivered. Um, and And what we don't see is how many good things are happening. Um, Or how many bad things are happening that nobody notices. Yeah. um, Because that's the way things go. Um, I think one of the tragedies of this event is that because it was so, um, so widespread and took such a long time that it does get you back to that kind of primal, like who was to blame? Oh, we need to put controls in place and um, all be extra more more protective, Um, which is a classic thing that happens in any organization after you have a big outage. Suddenly all the people who have like been accepting of things like, yes, we're going to deploy multiple times a day, um, and yes, we're going to let devs um, deploy straight out to production. Those things, you can get a bit of a bounce back effect in an organization, uh, where people are like, oh, let's just cool it a little bit. And at that point, the organization starts going slower again. Um, but I'll be there saying, no, no, we need to carry on. We need to keep on doing these things. Um, otherwise, we, we end up paralyzed. Um, so, yeah. I completely agree with
2: Matt. You know, we focus on the bad things, but so many outages would have been prevented early, right? Um, so I think it is santosh Denardhan, the VP of infrastructure at Facebook. He actually uh, wrote a uh, blog post about it after the outage. So what he's talking about is, you know, they have done so many storm drills. Um, so in a storm exercise, they simulate all the major system failures, you know, by taking down a service, a data center, the entire region offline, you know, testing all the infrastructure and the software. So all of these things they already do, right? Now, one thing they haven't done before was, you know, obviously um, taking down their backbone, uh, uh, mm-hmm. taking down the BGP protocol, something like that, and they got hit at that particular point. Uh, but it is a learning curve. They probably would have prevented multiple, multiple outages by, you know, doing all the earliest down that I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Now there's an opportunity to include a new one into the midst, right? And yeah. so they'll be doing that too. So there's a lot of learning there for us that, you know, obviously, you know, uh, you have to find out all the different failures that can occur, you know, try to prevent that from happening. But in this world, I mean, uh, with technology evolving so fast, there there's always something new that's coming up, right? And you have to prepare for it. Uh, if you can see it earlier, yeah. yeah, great. If not, you know, uh, learn and move on, right?
1: Something new or something old, um, I find found any conversation I've had about chaos monkeying. Um, I'm not sure if that's a word. what it, well, it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, has, has been like, um, hey, we want to do some chaos monkey engineering. We want to go and take down the servers. And if you're at a first level of iteration of ev- evolution um, in an organisation, people are like horrified. They're like, no, you can't take down the servers. That will cause, cause an outage. And mm-hmm. then you get to a second level where they're like. Yes, well, we've got some auto-scaling groups here and resilient self-healing infrastructure. So, yeah, if you take down that server, then another one will spring up over there or another container or whatever. Um, and then you get to the third level, which is like, um, yes, you can do that. that that's fine, yeah. Um, uh, do that on all these products. Oh, but not that thing over there. No, don't, <laughs> don't try and kill that one because um, we're not really sure about that one. Um, but maybe the bit that broke in Facebook was of that ilk perhaps Mm. Um, the kind of, when you go off and redesign uh, or or design your infrastructure, you look at uh, standard things like taking out single points of failure, um, making sure that individual pieces of equipment are resilient and can fail. Um, Things like AS numbers, um, the autonomous system stuff that drives basically the backbone of the internet um, is actually quite fragile in my opinion, um, and very, very difficult to make resilient. Um, you can have multiple routers, um, but you don't necessarily have... So if a router fails, you know, a massive backbone router fails in, inside Facebook data center or an appearing point, transit location, probably no problem. Traffic will go other ways. Um, but then there's, these, there's this one thing that you can't really get away from the single point of failure of, which is the, the AS number. Or you could... And they probably will now having had this outage. Um, But again, learnings across organizations um, seem to be that there are a lot of these things and it gets harder and harder to engineer Mm -hmm. them out around the edges. Um, Maybe that was a contributing factor.
2: And of course, with the pandemic going on, people were not actually inside the office, and that made things harder. They couldn't get back in now that they were locked out, right? So it was a perfect storm, um, unfortunately, for Facebook and the users of Facebook, but I think at the end of the day, I mean, the biggest joke in the software world is, you know, if nothing works, try restarting it. And that's exactly <laughs> what they did, right? They got somebody into the data center. Uh, I don't know. They probably picked um, the doors open and it <laughs> and rebooted the system and everything magically came back.
0: <laughs> yep. Turning it off and on again. Yep. <laughs> Should have tried that first. <laughs> So let's move on to another discussion point. Um, So GitLab's IPO.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Yay. Mm. Go GitLab. Yeah, I have a a lot of time for GitLab. Um, Me too. Great company. Um, Great products. Um, Unprecedented levels of transparency around they do things. Um, So um, yeah, I hope they um, um, make a big success of it. yeah, IPOing um, a big step. Oh, although GitLab's been around for a long time, but it seems to have gone pretty thermonuclear in the last couple of years, um, which is brilliant.
2: Yeah, I, I remember when Atlassian did their IPO, I was definitely asset at that time. And um, I wasn't actually investing at that time uh, in, in stocks, so I actually told my friend, hey, Atlassian is going public, so you might want to invest Then That time, I think it was like, lower 20s I I believe when when he started it and now it's like definitely more than 100 last time I checked so I wasn't going to miss this one as soon as I heard GitLab is going public I'm going to put some money (laughs) because I have actually used GitLab it's an awesome product and I can already see the future is bright for GitLab and uh, yeah, I hope I'm right about this one.
1: <laughs> Disclaimer, some of our panelists may have invested into GitLab. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's it's a great platform. Um, uh, as I'm sure many people know, Adaptivists are partnered with GitLab um, and we're getting a, a whole load of success in, uh, um, in people who are interested in us, helping them get the most out of it. Um, brilliant kind of all-in-one solution for software delivering everything kind of DevOps from start to finish. Right, Jobin? I know you and your team have, have, uh, have been using it pretty much in depth.
2: Um, it is, absolutely. Yeah, and we have actually, um, I, I don't know, we are still learning some aspects of it because, as you said, it's a tool that can do almost everything, right? I mean, starting from planning all the way to monitoring. So uh, we had started using GitLab for what it was known earlier, right, like the SCM system and the CACD tool. But it can, of course, do a lot more now, and we are still learning parts of it. But that's the beauty of it, right? I mean, technology keeps evolving. And uh, the tools that you see today are not exactly the same that you see tomorrow because, you know, the same tool actually has actually have so many other functionalities in it. It's amazing how far GitLab has gone in the last three, four years.
0: Yeah, it's great because actually I think in my first software engineer role, I was introduced to GitLab and I loved it. It was really easy to use for CICD, especially as me having my first Input for DevOps and my first experience of pipelines. So it's great that it's just gone up leaps and bounds since then.
2: Yeah. And at this point in time, we are actually dogfooding GitLab for planning purposes. Obviously, we are an Atlassian shop and we have actually used Jira for planning for so long. But we are learning ourselves by you know using GitLab for our planning internally within my team, just so we can get a feel of how good it is and, you know, uh, obviously, when we go to a customers, we want to be experts on the tool, and so we should be using it ourselves to get a feel of it. Which is what we are doing now.
1: It's interesting talking about this um, th- this single tool that consolidates lots of things together, um, and how that's a great thing. Um, <clears throat> especially, it's it's a bit dichotomous with what we were talking about with like Facebook. They should be like not using the same things and like keeping things separate. Um, mm. And uh, y- yeah. Uh, one of the reasons I like GitLab and will recommend it in, in many situations is because it it is a one-stop shop. Um, we've got, um, uh, as we know, there's been an absolute proliferation of, of great tools um, in the DevOps sphere. And, and as an old-fashioned kind of Unix person, um, I kind of like having lots of, lots of tools. The whole Unix philosophy is you have one tool that does one job and does it really, really well. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually... Um, seeing this single tool that goes all the way from the source code management through your CI, your CD, um, deploying, monitoring, um, container registry, et cetera, et cetera, yada, yada, infrastructure management. You can run Kubernetes clusters from within the thing. Um, I I was a bit cynical. Um, You know, we've got um, something that often comes up in Adaptoist, for example, is like, um, can we have like DevOps in a box? Um, and actually, I spent quite a long time trying to make one of these things, and um, DevOps in a box with all the things you need to actually do all these things all in one go. Um, and it kind of missed for various reasons, um, not all of which were technical. Um, GitLab seemed to have found the sweet spot of the just enough functionality and all those bits, and getting the integration between the bits um, working really, really nicely um, to, um, to to start kicking it out of the park. So, um, yeah, good luck to them
0: brings me on nicely to um, what we're doing um, within Adaptivist. We can, we're we uh, doing product pods. Do you guys want to discuss a bit about this?
2: Yeah, I was thinking about the same thing. That's exactly what I was going to say. You know, Matt just mentioned about DevOps and DevOps. Yeah, mm-hmm. our, our own product pods. So this is very interesting because I think Matt is one of the persons who started doing this within our company. I have actually um, people who, who know the history of Adaptivism and they acquired to Group recently. Uh, So I came out from GoToGroup, and we had internally doing something called CWF, uh, Common uh, Continuous Workspaces Framework, uh, which was doing pretty much something similar. Um, So we introduced this idea after joining Adaptivist, and somebody said, you should talk to Matt. And why is that? And Matt was already doing this since inside Adaptives. And I'm like, oh, well, well, that's great. Okay, like my like minds think alike, or maybe, you know, he was far ahead of the game. So I talked to Mike, Matt and I was like, here's product ports. Uh, that was really interesting. So, Matt, uh, tell us more about product ports.
1: Thank you. Not sure about far ahead of the game. I was just like to be just a little bit further ahead of the game because otherwise I, uh, I run out of breath. Um, so, um, so yeah. Um, so, Coming on from what we were talking about, like DevOps Dev in a Box, it was accidental that I've managed to almost seamlessly segue us into this uh, this part of the, the podcast. Um, uh, we often get asked, as adaptivists, um, for um, infrastructure to go off and either try out new things or do migrations for customers um, or um, what's a good example? Here we go. Uh, so adaptivists... Um, fairly well known for ScriptRunner group of products um, and many other projects that we do, which are um, plugins for Jira and Confluence. Um, And one of the things we found that we needed was to be able to test out new versions of ScriptRunner um, or any of the other products on a Jira or a Confluence instance. Um, Well, we've got Jira and Confluence instances. Um, They're (laughs) quite critical in running our business. Um, Or actually, maybe we don't want to use them um, (laughs) because, well, yeah, they're... Um, not because, again, harking back to the Facebook thing, not because we think our developers are going to break them, um, but because, well, actually, maybe we want to be able to let them experiment. Um, so, um, so yeah, <clears throat> we invented something called Product Pods. Um, long story short, a um, name come up with by our CIO, I think, uh, Neil Riley, um, to basically give you pods um, of applications like a Jira or a Confluence or a Bitbucket or a GitLab jenkins nexus etc etc uh in a kind of ephemeral temporary way running inside of kubernetes hence the pods thing because kubernetes runs things in pods Mm -hmm. um put a self-service interface on the front of that uh using a tool called rancher which is a great orchestrator for uh, for containers um and developers can go off and spin up whatever they need um so, yeah, a continuation of uh, a number of ideas, the DevOps in a Box thing, which we, we tried to do a couple of years ago. Um, and uh, and and that project didn't really go anywhere. That's fine. We tried. We learned. Um, and eventually, we have um, yeah, the pods. Um, so, ideas for this in the future. Basically, we're going to have a look at moving anything that's temporary um, or ephemeral. So, things that are uh, maybe... Uh, just in existence while we do a professional service engagement with a customer perhaps um, or whilst a piece of software is being released that our products teams are, are developing um, and put them all inside of this thing um, the great thing is the technology is coming towards us um the sort of applications that people want to deploy and want to use within the organization tend to run quite nicely inside of kubernetes they maybe even have helm charts with them which are the um the um, Basically, the bits of YAML that define how each individual bits of an application get glued together to form one cohesive whole. Um, for example, in GitLab, um, GitLab isn't just one thing; it's a, it's a collection of lots of different components, um, and orchestrating them together is um, is not the work of a moment. Um, and so, what that's meant is that we can have uh, a developer who needs uh, a Jira installation to test the software against can have that within about 12 minutes. Um, and most of that is because Jira takes a long time to start up. So that's product pods in a nutshell. Um, and yeah, really excited about that, uh, where we can go with that. Um, it gives us um, uh, a lot of opportunities to unify the way that we run things, because it's all Kubernetes, and that's all the same, uh, and basically help people within the, our organization to get their jobs done quicker without having to worry about how do I deploy this, I need a server for that, those mm-hmm. sort of issues. Sorry, yeah. that's for way too long there. Hopefully it's going no, no, to pick absolutely. up on it. It's to really <laughs> not what it is
2: before we start talking about it, right? So I think yeah. internally itself what adaptive, is, we are using it for different, different um things, like for example, for prof- professional services when we are uh, doing demos to the customer or when we want to, you know. Uh, pitch an idea to the customer, it's very, very easy to create a demo environment using product pods. Um, you, you need a JIRA environment, you need a Bitbucket environment, or Jenkins, uh, GitLab, all, all the different tools that Matt was talking about earlier, You just spin it up. Uh, you can even do that with the help of existing data, uh, so that is another useful thing. Um, so you, you spin up a JIRA environment with 100,000 issues, uh, maybe... Uh, with some rapid boards or um, agile boards on it, um, so it's very easy for us to you know show demos to the customer uh, pretty fast. That's one thing, but then we also have our product team who are working on releasing new versions of the product, uh, and of course you know they want to test the product in different versions of Jira or maybe do some performance testing right with different data set. Uh, you have different data set and you can spin up three different data instances with 100,000 issues, a million issues, two million issues, and then do your performance testing against them. So there are a lot of of different use cases that you can think about. Now, one thing I picked up, Matt, uh, was you mentioned that this is mostly aimed at, you know, ephemeral environments, environments that doesn't last long. Uh, But one of the use cases that came up with one of our customers, a, a major airline customer that we had, uh, was that they they create different environments for different customers on board. And for each customer, they needed a Jira, a Jenkins, and a NetSense, Right. Um, so what we came up the idea of, of continuous Works, workspaces framework, CWF of that mm-hmm. I was talking about earlier, was because whenever a new customer comes on board, we just need to spin up these three different tools. You need a Jira, you need a Jenkins, you need a okay. uh, Netsus integrated together, right? Um, so probably product ports is something that we can use for that scenario as yeah, so well. It, it it's not necessarily an ephemeral environment, it's going to last long. It's going to last uh for the duration of the customer engagement, maybe six months, maybe six years, who knows? And right? but that's another use case where you can have product ports use, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, so to be totally fair, um most of the things that let you do those those sort of enhancements um, are down to the, the, the beauty of, of Kubernetes. Um, I know we haven't got seven hours for me to wax mm-hmm. lyrical about Kubernetes, um, but the things that we've done um, have been have all been part of a learning process um, and coming from a point of, of things like um, everything's running in a container. Um, containers are generally suggested that they should be kind of short-lived um, that's one of the design things around containers: is that they they spin up, they do something, and then they go away again. Um, applications like Jira and Confluence and Nexus um, are are not really like that. So already you're like, mm, this isn't quite Kubernetes' core um, um, core thing. And you get things like the file system within a container goes away once um, once the container goes. Um, so the first things that we've done over the, the last year or so or a couple of years have kind of tried to fit into that model of ephemerality again i think i'm making up words here but i'm sure you know <laughs> what i mean um but that's that's just the start um so we're doing things like each jira has a database the database runs within the kubernetes cluster so if the container for the database goes away then um you're not sure where your data is going to go um that ain't any good for something that's going to be long running um but Kubernetes lets you deal with things like that. You can go off and um, create external databases, maybe an RDS database within Amazon. You can get plugins like Crossplane, which do this for you in Kubernetes. Um, and uh, also for storage, you want long-lasting storage. You can set up EBS volumes in Amazon and all the other equivalents and all the cloud providers. And other cloud providers are available, ladies and gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Um, and do all that sort of stuff. That's the next level of stuff that we want to do. Um, firstly, for that, um, that airline um, although Kubernetes is full of like boat-based metaphors and containers, so I'm no, not sure no. how that works with airlines. But sorry, cheap cheap gag. Um, <laughs> and also for our our internal stuff, um, we have had discussions around um, maybe putting our core, the the big adaptivist Jira and Confluence inside of containers. Um, it's a fairly scary prospect, but it is actually kind of feasible now. Um, and I can see those use cases being very, very valuable to uh to, to customers and prospects who um, who want to uh, who want to do that sort of thing. Hey, interested in running Kubernetes? Come and talk to us. <laughs> yeah, and, and I I don't
2: think I have talked to you about this one Matt, before because uh, but one of the key initiatives that I have in mind for this year is you know DevOps of the service. Um when we come around to that, obviously, I think, you know, product ports is going to play a big uh, big uh, role in that because obviously behind the scenes, you know, when you're offering DevOps as a service, we need to spin up different services, uh, different tools, of course, you know, uh, maybe running in Kubernetes containers and that's posted to the customers. So, you know, how easy can you do it? I mean,
1: well, we have product
2: ports, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, this sort of thing is getting easier putting groups of applications together to solve problems um is is basically an orchestration problem um or an orchestration task uh kubernetes with a layer on top um to to actually do all that for you in a consistent and um robust way is is the way forward everything is getting more complicated
2: yeah now we can finally focus on the customer problem and the solution to it rather than Worrying about installing the software and figuring out why it is working in my environment, not somewhere else, and
1: so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's the dream, isn't it, Rami? Yeah, it really is the dream.
0: <laughs> Finally, for this episode, some of us got together with Jason Spriggs from Adaptivist um, about Atlassian Open DevOps. So let's listen to that conversation now. Hi, we're joined by Jason Spriggs, who is a senior DevOps consultant at Adaptivist. So, Jason, what is Atlassian Open DevOps?
3: Yeah, so Atlassian Open DevOps is a series of tools that Atlassian has partnered with other third-party integrators and also internally to their own tools um, to basically put together a best-in-class series of tools that allow you to show deployments and operational functions inside of Atlassian tools and make sure that those integrations are basically best-in-class.
0: Awesome. How have you found using it so far?
3: It's been pretty all right. Um, Thankfully, once you understand some of the methodologies behind actually doing those integrations and installing them through um, the Atlassian marketplace, it becomes pretty straightforward as far as setting all that stuff up.
2: All right. uh, That's awesome, Dyson. I do um, I heard that you mentioned the word best in class tooling that is very interesting because I was actually reading the blog from Atlassian themselves and they were saying you know we don't want you to be using the good enough tools um, mm-hmm. we want you to be using the best in class so this is actually a change from Atlassian's mindset that uh, okay there are some of the tools out there which you know customers are using why not bring them together into one single place and you know why not help them with a, a place like Jira this is a change in mindset.
3: Yeah, totally. So I think uh, that Atlassian has really determined that they really do have a niche that they are very good at in the project management space. And understanding that not all of their tools are necessarily the best or what every developer wants to be using. But they understand that they do really have their market Set in the project management space. So, being able to tie all these tools together and provide integrations that people really like to use um, is certainly up their alley.
1: I noticed that um, quite a lot of the tools that we've got integrations for tend to be more of the operational side of, of things. So, things like um, sneak virus scanning, for example, and um, using um, GitHub, GitLab as source code repositories. Does, does that feel like um, um again, I guess I guess that echoes what you're saying about um Atlassian focusing down on, on their core tools. Um, but how have you found the um the, the integrations with with other third parties?
3: They've been pretty good. Um, all things told, it's it's really nice that either these these various tools have their own items in the sidebar for whatever they would be doing inside of Jira, um, or they will directly interface inside of issues or in ops genie that you might see. like for error tracking um, you would have if an error pops up in your application it would go into OpsG and then it would create a ticket off of that Um, so you're able to make use of a lot of the Jira automation platform tools Um, so if an event happens on one of these integrations you're able to follow it through the entire lifecycle so it goes from start to finish and you're able to control how that goes
2: So how easy is it to configure? I mean, that that makes me wonder because when you're talking about uh, the Atlassian tools itself, right? Uh, Integrating Jira with Bitbucket or Confluence, it's fairly straightforward. I mean, it it comes as a bundle. You just install it, configure the application links, and everything works magically, right? Is that the same with, um, say, something like GitLab or GitHub, or are there other
3: steps to configure it? So thankfully, once you understand some of the methodologies where you have to install things through the Atlassian marketplace, it does become pretty straightforward. Unfortunately, a lot of these other tools still have their own first-party integrations that they've done themselves, as opposed to Atlassian helping them with their integration. So it can sometimes be confusing from that side. So if you're trying to install something like Jira into GitLab, you need to be doing that from inside of Jira installing the marketplace add-in and then doing the link as opposed to installing the Jira add-in inside of GitLab and then doing it the other way around because you won't get any of the open DevOps functionality if you do it the quote-unquote old way.
1: So in terms of the integrations, um, what, what are the limitations as you see them, Jason? I think
3: right now they have about 15 or so integrations that are baked in that, uh, give you a pretty decent swath of what is available. Um, but unfortunately there, there still are a number of very obvious DevOps tools that are not able to be integrated. So things like Jenkins, which I think every developer would be well aware of is just not supported. And obviously they are expanding out their tooling set, but it is still fairly limited as far as the number of partners that they're working with. Um, also, I would say that some of the cloud functionality that needs to be tied in with the Atlassian cloud side and then also the cloud versions of all of these integrations, you don't have feature parity with on any on-premise applications. So you're you're really stuck with making sure that your tools are not only cloud on both sides, but also that the features that you want to make use of only make use of those cloud functions. Anytime that you cross into your own hosted infrastructure, you lose a decent bit of functionality.
0: So talking about price or costing, um, <clears throat> do you have to be on like the premium to get access to the module? Or what? what do you have to be on standard, premium, or enterprise to gain access to this um, DevOps module?
3: No, so thankfully you are able to make use of it at any level of uh, pricing inside of the Atlassian uh, cloud ecosystem. Obviously, you're limited by the number of users that you can actually make use of it for, but if you just want to trial it out and you have a small number of users, then you're pretty well set.
2: Uh, so, Jason, I was actually reading the blog that I mentioned about earlier, and it does seem like, you know, Atlassian gives a default DevOps project that is built around, you know, Jira software, of course, uh, Confluence, BitPacket, and Obscene. Um, So, am I right to assume that, okay, if I'm not using any products like GitLab, GitHub, and if I just want to get started on DevOps, uh, I have the option to go to Atlassian, sign up for Atlassian Open DevOps, and I get these different products and then uh, go from there? Uh,
3: So, yeah, if you go to the Atlassian Open DevOps page, and you can just Google for that, um, they do have an option for you to basically go and sign up for a free trial. It will. Cr- you can either integrate it with an existing uh, Atlassian cloud site if you already have one, or you can create a new one just to test with, and that's generally how I suggest folks get started. Um, from there, they have a very nice ingrained tutorial of, oh, this is how you actually go through and follow the steps to get some of the integration set up. Um And that is something that you can just play around with. And it shows you various integrations between not just Jira and external tools, but also within the uh, Atlassian ecosystem. So between Jira and Ops, things of that nature.
1: I guess you've taken it for a spin already. Um, I think uh, I heard you mentioned you'd uh, done a bit of experimentation um, with the tools. Um, How far did you get with that?
3: Um, Pretty decently far. Um, So I've been able to test it out mainly with uh, GitLab and GitHub. Um, And then I've also messed around with some of the uh, observability tools that come with uh, Sentry and Datadog. Um, So those allow you to, say, take in error streams that might be occurring in your production or test applications, identify oh, this is a new error, where may it have been introduced? And then either you can have it create new JIRA tickets so then developers can go take a look at it. And then you can start doing your triaging that you would normally do instead of JIRA. Um, So it's, it's a fairly robust suite of things. And thankfully, it's pretty straightforward because it's just relying on the JIRA automation engine to actually set these integrations up and have it do basically whatever you want. I believe,
2: Jason, you also did a presentation about uh, Atlassian opportunity with uh, DevOps in one of our events, right? I mean, you were doing a demo plus a short presentation on it?
3: Yeah, uh, so at GitLab commit uh, this year, it was all virtual, but we did do a relatively decent way of just going through and setting it up, showing out how you can integrate it specifically with GitLab um, and going through those processes and showing off some of the features that were inside of there that's what it was
1: thank you it's interesting um for as long as i've been an adaptivist and uh, actually going back before um we've been playing with this concept of like devops in a box um it's like let's just glue loads of things together um <clears throat> excuse me and make them one coherent whole um so we can like do devops properly um and yeah last thing to come up with this now and it is um, especially given that they've kind of issued the you know, the lock-in just to specifically Atlassian applications. Um, do you feel we're any closer to to, to to getting that or indeed is that a desirable thing? What do you think? I,
3: I think that they've certainly made it so. They they understand that, they, that not every developer and every team wants to be using just exclusively their tools. So I think being able to have all of these integrations that allow tool teams to use basically whatever they feel most comfortable and might fit their particular workflow the best, uh, certainly is starting to tear down some of those walls that you previously would have seen, but still making it nice enough that it's able to be controlled for and inside of their own ecosystem.
2: Yeah, I'm also curious how it actually compares with a lot of other dashboarding, reporting tools that we have. Um, Matt, uh, we are working with other vendors like PlanTech for example, who actually consumes information from different tools, DevOps tools, even Jira. And bring it together. And here, Atlassian is doing the same thing with Jira, right? Bringing all the information together into inside Jira. So I'm curious how it is going to develop going forward, and you know, how it competes with all these other reporting tools,
3: dashboarding tools. Yeah, certainly. And I know that they've been working on getting their their own uh, analytics tools inside of Jira to actually be fairly robust and make it easy for you to see, oh, are you completing a certain number of tickets? What's the number of commits that normally would actually occur in a ticket? Um, So you can track things like developer velocity. And um, thankfully they've, with all of these tools, been introducing a lot of that functionality directly into Jira. So it certainly is interesting
1: it's cool that you've got all these different places where we're starting to get integrations between different tools because I think we all suffer massively from um, proliferation of, of so many different tools. And, you know, as Jobin says, the, the big problem becomes around reporting of a single pane of, of glass. Um, <clears throat> and I'm wondering if there's an opening for these multiple panes of glass that then have a single pane of glass over the top um, and maybe like grouping the, the sort of tools that you can use with, um, open DevOps together with something like Blender over the top sounds like a win to me. I mean, the more visibility, the better, right?
3: For sure. And that just sort of goes further into the fact that, you know, while they do offer their own alternative inside of their own tools, they aren't necessarily saying that you have to use it. So I think that really is just making it even easier for you to be able to use whatever tool your team feels is best.
0: I think that Atlassian have done a fantastic job in in, in offering that. One of the biggest things that we see at clients uh, all the time is how do we get all of these tools that we're working with to integrate and talk to each other so that we're not, you know, um, swiveling in your chair, you know, changing context all the time to all these different tools. How can we get it into one place and not have to spend a fortune um, on that? Uh, and, and this is, a, this is a, great, a great start.
2: Yep, no more compromise, right? Mm. Use the tool that you like and see the yeah. action inside Jira. yeah, yeah. For sure. but use Jira, right <laughs> exactly
1: <Yeah. laughs> exactly yeah. Seems like that's the difference isn't it it's like um so previous initiatives are like um if you want to have this visibility then you have to use all the standard stuff whereas here we're like yeah use what you like and and as we've seen um if we look at in the cultural side of transformation um and stuff um, that if you, if you you want to be removing the friction from teams and if they can be still using the tools that they want to use, but all the other boxes around reporting and auditing um, get ticked um, and centralization, then, yeah, seems like a massive win to me.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks, Jason, for sharing your knowledge with us um, and thanks, everybody, for coming to the interview.
3: Goodbye. No, thanks so much.
0: And that's everything that we have for today's episode, A New Hope. Please contact us um, on social at Adaptivist. Um, Let us know what you're thinking of the show. For me, Romy Greenfield, Jobin, and Matt, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on DevOps Decrypted, which is a part of the Adaptivist Live Podcast Network.